Section 8 of The World's Famous Orations, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeffrey Wilson, Ames, Iowa. The World's Famous Orations, Volume 5. On the Desertion of Gordon in Egypt, by Robert Arthur Talbot Gascoigne Cecil, the third Marquess of Salisbury. Salisbury, born in 1830, died in 1903, succeeded to the title of Marquis in 1868, graduated from Oxford in 1850, entered Parliament in 1854, Secretary for India in 1866, Chancellor of the University of Oxford in 1869, Secretary for India in 1874, Foreign Secretary in 1878, at the Congress of Berlin in 1878, Prime Minister during four terms, 1885, 1886, 1895, 1900. On the Desertion of Gordon in Egypt Footnote Delivered in the House of Lords, July 26, 1885, in support of a motion of censure on the Gladstone government. Abridged. By kind permission of the London Times and Messrs. Dent and Company, London. End of footnote. The motion which I have the honour to lay before your lordships has a double aspect. It passes judgment on the past and expresses an opinion with regard to the policy of the future. Some people receive with considerable impatience the idea that at the present crisis of our country's destiny we should examine into the past and spend our time in judging of that which cannot be recalled. But I think that such objections are unreasonable. We depend in one of the greatest crises through which our country has ever passed on the wisdom and decision of those who guide our counsels, and we can only judge of what dependence is rightly to be placed by examining their conduct in the past, and seeing whether what they have done justifies us in continuing that confidence in the difficulties which are to come. Now. Whatever else may be said of the conduct of Her Majesty's government, I think those who examine it carefully will find that it follows a certain rule and system, and that in that sense, if in no other, it is consistent. Their conduct at the beginning of the Egyptian affair has been analogous to their conduct at the end. Throughout, there has been an unwillingness to come to any requisite decision till the last moment. There has been an absolute terror of fixing upon any settled course, and the result has been that, when the time came that external pressure forced a decision on some definite course, the moment for satisfactory action had already passed, and the measures that were taken were taken in haste, with little preparation and often with little fitness for the emergencies with which they had to cope. The conduct of the government has been an alternation of periods of slumber and periods of rush.
The rush, however vehement, has been too unprepared and too unintelligent to repair the damage which the period of slumber has effected. Now, my lords, these three things, the case of the bombardment of Alexandria, the abandonment of the Sudan, and the mission of General Graham's force, they are all on the same plan, and they all show that remarkable characteristic of torpor during the time that action was needed, and of impulsive, hasty, and ill-considered action when the moment for action had passed by. Their future conduct was modelled on their conduct in the past. So far was it modelled that we were able to put it to the test which establishes a scientific law. The proof of scientific law is when you can prophesy from previous experience what will happen in the future. It is exactly what took place in the present instance. We had these three instances of the mode of working of Her Majesty's government before us. We knew the laws that guided their action. As astronomers, observing the motions of a comet, can discover by their observations the future path which that comet is to travel, and we prophesied what would happen in the case of General Gordon. Footnote. Gordon was besieged at Khartoum on March 12, 1884, and was killed at the storming of the city on January 26, 1885. That is, six months previous to the date of this speech. End of footnote. At all events, this is clear, that throughout those six months, the government knew perfectly well the danger in which General Gordon was placed. It has been said that General Gordon did not ask for troops. Well, I am surprised at that defense. One of the characteristics of General Gordon was the extreme abnegation of his nature. It was not to be expected that he should send home a telegram to say, I am in great danger, therefore send me troops. He would probably have cut off his right hand before he would have sent such a telegram. But he did send a telegram that the people of Khartoum were in danger, and that the Mahdi must win unless military succor was sent forward, and distinctly telling the government, and this is the main point, that unless they would consent to his views, the supremacy of the Mahdi was assured. My lords, is it conceivable that after that, two months after that, in May, the Prime Minister should have said that the government was waiting to have reasonable proof that Gordon was in danger? By that time, Khartoum was surrounded and the governor of Berber had announced that his case was desperate, which was too surely proved by the massacre which took place in June. And yet in May, Mr. Gladstone was waiting for reasonable proof that they were in danger. Apparently, he did not get that proof till August. A general sent forward on a dangerous expedition does not like to go whining for assistance unless he is pressed by absolute peril. All those great qualities which go to make men heroes are such as are absolutely incompatible with such a course, 
and lead them to shrink as from a great disgrace from any unnecessary appeal for exertion for their protection. It was the business of the government not to interpret General Gordon's telegrams as if they had been statutory declarations, but to judge for themselves of the circumstances of the case, and to see that those who were surrounded, who were the only three Englishmen among this vast body of Mohammedans, who were already cut off from all communication with the civilized world by the occupation of every important town upon the river, were in real danger. I do not know any other instance in which a man has been sent to maintain such a position without a certain number of British troops. If the British troops had been there, treachery would have been impossible, but sending Gordon by himself to rely on the fidelity of Africans and Egyptians was an act of extreme rashness. And if the government succeed in proving, which I do not think they can, that treachery was inevitable, they only pile up an additional reason for their condemnation. I confess it is very difficult to separate this question from the personal matters involved. It is very difficult to argue it on purely abstract grounds without turning for a moment to the character of the man who was engaged and the terrible position in which he was placed. When we consider all he underwent, all that he sacrificed, in order to serve the government in a moment of extreme exigency, there is something infinitely pathetic in reflecting on his feelings as day after day, week after week, month after month passed by, as he spared no exertions, no personal sacrifice, to perform the duties that were placed upon him as he lengthened out the siege by inconceivable prodigies of ingenuity, of activity, of resource, and as, in spite of it all, in spite of the deep devotion to his country which had prompted him to this great risk and undertaking, the conviction gradually grew upon him that his country had abandoned him. It is terrible to think what he must have suffered when at last, as a desperate measure to save those he loved, he parted with the only two Englishmen with whom, during those long months, he had any converse, and sent Stuart and Power down the river to escape from the fate which had become inevitable to himself. It is very painful to think of the reproaches to his country and to his country's government that must have passed through the mind of that devoted man during those months of unmerited desertion. In Gordon's letter of the 14th of December, he said, All is up. I expect a catastrophe in ten days' time. It would not have been so if our people had kept me better informed as to their intentions. They had no intentions to inform him of. They were merely acting from hand to mouth to avert the parliamentary censure with which they were threatened. They had no plan, they had no intentions to carry out. If they could have known their intentions, a great hero would have been saved to the British army. A great disgrace would not have fallen on the English government. Now, by the light of this sad history, 
what are the prospects for the future? Was there ever a time when clearness of plan and distinctness of policy were more required than they are now? I am not going to say that the policy of the government is bad. It would be paying them an extravagant compliment if I said so. They have no policy. On one point only do they put down their foot, and that is, the Egyptians shall not keep the Sudan. We were told that they were going to smash the Mahdi, but now we are to make peace with the smashed Mahdi. If you smash the Mahdi thoroughly, he will be of no use to you, and if you do not smash him thoroughly, he may maintain at the bottom of his heart a certain resentment against the process of being smashed. Now, let us examine what are the interests of England in this matter. With Mediterranean politics as such, we have no great interest to concern ourselves. But Egypt stands in a peculiar position. It is the road to India. The condition of Egypt can never be indifferent to us, and, more than that, we have a duty to insist that our influence shall be predominant there. I do not care by what technical arrangements that result is to be obtained, but with all due regard to the rights of the suzerain, the influence of England in Egypt must be supreme. Now, the influence of England in Egypt is threatened from two sides. It is threatened from the North diplomatically. I do not think it is necessary that the powers should have taken up the position they have done, and I believe that with decent steering it might have been avoided. But, unfortunately, we have to face inchoate schemes which will demand the utmost jealousy and vigilance of Parliament. I do not know what arrangement the government has arrived at, but I greatly fear that it may include a multiple control, and to that I believe this country will be persistently and resolutely hostile. But we have to face a danger of another kind. We have forces of fanatical barbarians let loose upon the south of Egypt, and owing to the blunders that have been committed, this danger has reached a terrible height. Unless we intend to give over Egypt to barbarism and anarchy, we must contrive to check this inroad of barbarian fanaticism, which is personified in the character and action of the Mahdi. General Gordon never said a truer thing than that you will do this by simply drawing a military line. If the insurgent Mohammedans reach the north of Egypt, it will not be so much by their military force as by the moral power of their example. We have therefore to check this advance of the Mahdi's power. Her Majesty's government, in the glimpses of policy which they occasionally afford us, have alluded to the possibility of setting up a good government in the Sudan. I quite agree that a good government is essential to us in the Sudan. It is the only dike we can really erect to keep out this inundation of barbarism and fanatical forces. All those advantages can be obtained if England will lay down a definite policy 
and will adhere to it, but consistency of policy is absolutely necessary. We have to assure our friends that we shall stand by them. We have to assure our enemies that we are permanently to be feared. The blunders of the last three years have placed us in the presence of terrible problems and difficulties. We have great sacrifices to make. This railway will be an enormous benefit to Africa, but do not let us conceal from ourselves that it is a task of no small magnitude. If you are to carry this railway forward, you will not only have to smash the Mahdi, but Osman Digna also. All this will involve great sacrifices and the expenditure not only of much money, but of more of the English blood, of which the noblest has already been poured forth. And we are not so strong as we were. At first, all nations sympathized with us, but now they look on us coldly and even with hostility. Those who were our friends have become indifferent, those who were indifferent have become our adversaries. And if our misfortunes and disasters go on much longer, we shall have Europe saying that they cannot trust us, that we are too weak, that our prestige is too low to justify us in undertaking this task. My lords, those great dangers can only be faced by a consistent policy, which can only be conducted by a ministry capable of unity of counsel and decision of purpose. I have shown you that from this ministry we can expect no such results. They can only produce after their kind. They will only do what they have already done. You cannot look for unity of counsel from an administration that is hopelessly divided. You cannot expect a resolute policy from those whose purpose is hopelessly halting. It is for this reason, my lords, that I ask you to record your opinion that from a ministry in whom the first of all, the quality of decision of purpose is wanting, you can hope no good in this crisis of our country's fate. And if you continue to trust them, if, for any party reasons, Parliament continues to abandon to their care the affairs which they have hitherto so hopelessly mismanaged, you must expect to go on from bad to worse. You must expect to lose the little prestige which you retain. You must expect to find in other portions of the world the results of the lower consideration that you occupy in the eyes of mankind. You must expect to be drawn on, degree by degree, step by step, under the cover of plausible excuses, under the cover of highly philanthropic sentiments, to irreparable disasters, and to disgrace that it will be impossible to efface. End of section 8 Recording by Jeffrey Wilson, Ames, Iowa